even if you have kids who are very, very financially responsible, let's say they're a little older, you know that they're on a good trajectory, they're going to be getting a good education. What we can't guarantee is that they make good decisions in terms of whoever they may end up with romantically. Yeah. So while inherited assets are not supposed to be subject to divorce, they get commingled, I want to say every day of the week, and become subject to divorce. Welcome to Financially Ever After Widowhood, the podcast where we empower women to take control of their financial future after the loss of a spouse. I'm your host, Stacey Francis, President and CEO of Francis Financial, an award-winning and nationally recognized financial advisory firm. With the help of incredible guests, I'm ready to guide you through this challenging transition. Please help me welcome our special guest today, Amy Holzman. She's a trust and estate attorney with over 25 years of experience. And in her firm, she has five other attorneys, three paralegals, and works with hundreds of individuals just like you. I've been blessed enough to get to know Amy on a professional level and worked with her side by side on the Savvy Ladies Board, helping women to become financially knowledgeable, financially empowered. Savvy Ladies is a nonprofit educational organization that I started, and Amy has been there with me step by step along the way over these decades of supporting and helping women. I've also gotten to know Amy on a personal level. In fact, she may know more about me than many of my dear friends because she is my estate planning attorney and has been with me as my family has grown from having little children to now teenagers and also our financial situation changing along the way. She brings just so much great advice today to you as a mom who is on her own, wanting to make sure that her kids are taken care of if, God forbid, something happens to her. Not only is she a state planning attorney, but she herself is also a mom like myself. So without further ado, please help me welcome our fantastic guest today, Amy Holzman. Amy, I am so excited to chat with you today and essentially talk everything that our listeners might need to know about estate planning, in particular, if they have children and young children. And I know you're a mom as well. I'm a mom. And in fact, Amy, I will share with everyone, was my inspiration for realizing that, my gosh, I could do this whole business owner thing and have a family. And so a great big thank you to Amy. I would have Sebastian, Samantha, but it might have taken me a few more years to get the courage up to start a family. So it's great to have you here, Amy. Thank you, Stacy. Good to be here. So you're a mom, you have kids, and you're an estate planning attorney. So, I mean, yes. talk about a topic being perfect for you. You know, when you think about estate planning for, for particularly single moms who have, unfortunately, their spouse has passed away, what are some of those top issues that you think about that really need to be addressed? So the top issue that people always think about that I always say is the most important part of any will and the very least likely to happen, but the most important part is when you have younger children, 18 and under, you want to put a guardian, which is goes uh -huh. into your... So you definitely want to be naming a guardian, especially as a single parent of young children. You would 
run and not walk to have that in place. Yeah. And question, though, about guardian, who do you choose as a guardian? So, for example, my brother, I absolutely adore him, but I have listed him as a guardian because he's also married to Bridget, who's phenomenal. What are the things to think about? And can you say things like, as long as they are still married, they would be the guardians. If not, this would be my second choice. Sure, you can do that. So what I always tell people, first of all, a will is a completely revocable document, a document you can change. So pick Uh whoever's good for now and the next five years. I don't want people to think this is it. If I get it wrong, like if I pick my parents and then all of a sudden they have an illness or they become too old to do it, I'm stuck. Yeah. Pick who is your best option now. And also there are different circumstances. If you have very young children who could possibly move around, it's different than having teenage children who you'd probably want to try to keep in whatever location they are. I think it's also different if you have, for example, your finances in order or life insurance in order to say, I'm picking the person who I think will be the best moral barometer. They might not be the wealthiest person, but I've otherwise provided for that. And so this is who I want to pick. I also think your decision to have your children and be present in your children's lives is different than, let's say, for example, if you picked a parent and you're thinking, look, I will get them a housekeeper and I will get them someone to help drive around and do errands. I need them to have dinner with my children every night and check in. So they might not be appropriate to start a family except in a tragedy if there was something to happen to yourself, especially, again, as a single parent, you would really want to make sure that even if you were deciding other issues and you couldn't figure that out, you would want to put that together, I would say, immediately. So essentially not walking, but running to make sure that you have the right guardian in place. But my understanding, Amy, is that the most frequent issue that causes state planning documents actually to be signed is either disagreements among family members or just not sure about who the guardian should actually be. Do you see that? I see that with couples. And I've actually almost given the opposite advice, which is sign something and we'll figure out the guardianship. But you can't leave other issues just floating out there. But if you're a single parent, then you need to do the best you can. And to your earlier point, Maybe you like this one couple only if they're married. A lot of times it's more likely to say, I name my brother and his wife so long as she is married to him. You know, that's a little different than my brother's perfect. He's even better if he's married, but I'm not going to switch it over to his wife that he's divorcing. But it could be contingent on I want these people to be families. So I'm going to say first this family and then this family if they're not together. You can actually, because that's a question, what happens if, God forbid, you passed away and the first person or couple that you've nominated are in a position where they cannot be guardians for maybe one of them has a terminal illness, I assume that you would want a contingent then. Yes. So I do encourage people, if they have a contingent, to put in a contingent. They might not. And then I don't want them just put in a name because they'll want to change it. But certainly whoever you name as guardian, they are not compelled to accept the guardianship. And certainly if there's an intervening, as you said, for example, a health issue, you would want to go and change that. 
Are there any limitations of naming potential guardians who live outside the United States? So maybe that you might have family that is in England and you have young children. So it would be, from their perspective, feasible for the young children to be able to go there. But any issues? I mean, there are issues. But what I tell people is name whoever you think is best. Uh There are restrictions on citizenship for different roles in your will. And I've heard people, other attorneys say, you must name someone U.S.-based. It cannot be that we're holding children in foster care who have grandparents abroad. It's just simply not going to happen. It just defies. Yeah, they, they will get it, there. It defies the common sense and logic yeah. that that is the situation. So I really say name whoever you think is best. If you can put it in a contingency, fine. What you cannot do and doesn't make any sense is come up with a custodial agreement. I'm going to name these four grandparents and here's the rotation. This is not a divorce. <laughs> that is not where your mind needs to go. Also, in terms of how you want your children to be raised, you're more than welcome to write a detailed letter to be kept with your files that I have clients who will update that regularly. For example, if you want them to get a certain religious education, et cetera. But the court is not going to monitor that. In other words, they're not going to monitor, I'm going to appoint so-and-so as guardian, but they're going to all of a sudden be removed if they don't send children to religious school. That is not what the court is doing. They're appointing someone just like you're a parent and you don't lose your parental rights, except in situations of extreme abuse. Tell me about whether or not you should talk to the person who you've nominated in your will to be guardian to tell them that or ask them. That's an excellent question. My feeling on that is you should have a conversation with the first person you've appointed Uh and I would give serious thought about having conversations with backups. In other words, to tell someone you're my second choice in Guardian, you are more (laughs) likely to offend them. You are not likely to die. You're more likely to have many unhappy family occasions and (laughs) interfere with that relationship. So it's one thing to say to a sister, hey, I've named mom to do this. And if mom can't do it for any reason, I'd love you to step in. It's another thing to say to your mom, for example, your guardian, and then go to your deceased husband's spouse, your number two. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Or let's say you have two sisters and, you know, you ask one because you feel like they have a really strong, good relationship. And the other one is like, well, if they can't serve the sister number two, like, I can't imagine that would be a good situation at Thanksgiving. So be smart about it. Anything else to think about with guardians that we should think about with children? Like, I mean, does I it also we, change like when they're itty bitty versus like Well, that's what teenagers? I was saying. Pick whoever's good for now in the next five years. Yeah, yeah. Because it could be different with smaller children are easier to move around because they're not as entrenched with their various activities, yeah, et cetera, yeah. than an older child who may only need a guardian for a few years and you might have more emphasis on keeping them in wherever they're located. I'm sure yeah. you're getting there, Stacey. But to me, while guardianship is exceptionally important, as I said, probably the most important provision you're putting in your documents. But being that it's the least likely to happen, I want people to make a decision there. Again, they can change the documents. I, I have the most frequent change I will have people call me up about. Got it. But to give some really good thought on how you treat children even young adults under your documents, because that is 
guardianship ends at age 18. And that was going to be my next question. Okay, so it's at 18. What are the other things that need to be in place? To me, it's exceptionally important to have a trust for your child. And I don't mean a trust that you go to, you create today that you file with your accountant and you start giving your child money. I mean a trust if something happens to you. This is for whether you're married or a single parent, but it's obviously more important if you're a single parent because it could be more likely to come into play. Generally, the legal age of inheritance is 18, Mm. even if it's 21. I wouldn't give an 18 or 21-year-old, I'm going to say $1,000 without parents to see what would happen with that, let alone putting more zeros on top of that. I think it's exceptionally important to figure out your child, your financial situation, and what makes sense for you. So said differently, I draft trust for children all different ways. It depends on my client's values, the size of their estate, the potential size of their estate, you know, if they're a high earner or if not, if they might inherit from a parent, what their estate might look like. And to really be conservative, the longer they keep assets and trust, the more asset protection I can do. Mm -hmm. So what I get concerned about with teenagers, you know, the 18, 19, and young adults in their 20s, it's not that they won't find the perfect financial advisor like you. It's that if in those earlier years, if they're having any substance abuse problems, they don't have vulnerable parents, that's unfair to Mm -hmm. give them any kind of money that could, and I've unfortunately seen it. My saddest cases are people who inherited young and, you know, it's good themselves, themselves have died young yeah. because of drugs, because of a lot yeah. of access to funds that didn't have to be handled that way. So I really encourage people to take that away from children and put it someone else they want in charge of funds. Yeah. So that does not mean that your child does not get funds until older ages. It means that your child is not managing it themselves. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So can you tell me about the person that does manage it? And so that would be a trustee. That would be a trustee. And so you would be extraordinarily fortunate if someone in your family was good with money Uh because they are the perfect, perfect trustees because they can get themselves to a money manager. So they don't necessarily have to manage the money themselves and be investing in the stock market, but they can hire a financial advisor to do that on their behalf and then act as a fiduciary to make sure that they're, that financial advisor is doing a good job. Right. In fact, I recommend always that you have a financial advisor on the account because that's what protects you. That's how you're doing the right thing. So you wouldn't want somebody who is bad with funds, even if they hire a financial advisor, because that's, you know, part of the criteria. You would want someone who has who has some understanding of money, but their job is to know how your child or children are doing and to provide them, we say, funds to or for their benefit. So I'll give you the example of college. They're not giving them X amount of money, thousands of dollars to go to the bursar's office, and we hope they don't make a detour along the way. It's that they are going directly and paying the tuition, and here's a little bit of spending money every week or month for them to yeah, manage. Got it. But the big picture of 
how those funds are being handled is by the financial advisor who we say we have a child, they're college bound yep. in this many years, you know, invest for this. Or we have a child who's out of college who needs housing expenses, et cetera. So when we pick older ages for children or young adults to receive funds, again, it's not that they don't have funds at their disposal. It's just that there's somebody else you trust in a legal way who's managing it for them. In other words, you are not actually naming your sister. Hey, I'm naming my sister's beneficiary of my estate because she'll know what to do with the funds for my children. That's essentially giving funds to your sister and whoever her family might be. You would name your sister only in the role of trustee for the benefit of your children. Got it. And what I remember is that you can use it for, I always remember as HEMS, health, education, maintenance, and support for your child. And I know for us, for Sebastian and Samantha, we also then have certain payouts. So I think we have like a third at 25, a third maybe at like 30 or 35. I think you might have gone older at this point. I might have even gone older. Yeah. So and then a portion like in their 40s, because what ends up happening at those payouts is that that lump sum, they can do anything they want with it. They can go to Las Vegas if they want. Even if you have kids who are very, very financially responsible, let's say they're a little older, you know that they're on a good trajectory, they're going to be getting a good education. What we can't guarantee is that they make good decisions in terms of whoever they may end up with romantically. Yeah. So while inherited assets are not supposed to be subject to divorce, they get commingled, I want to say every day of the week, and become subject to divorce. So if you're not alive and your child, let's say, inherits at 25, everything goes at 25 and they meet somebody and then they end up putting joint assets together and buying a house and putting their the spouse's name on it. And put the spouse's name and commingling it with all of their other funds, then they've given away half their inheritance. And that's a hard conversation to have with a four-year-old, a 12-year-old, even an 18-year-old. Yes, no, I know, right? It's a tough conversation. So you want to put someone else in charge so that it's easier for them to say, hey, we'll give you money for a down payment. You know, if you're putting 80% down, the house needs to be on 80% by you. This is your parents' money. So this is- And this is what they wanted for you. Is there any way that you can make sure that the relationship your child has with the trustee stays strong? Meaning, because I could see this happening where the kid's 22 and is graduating from college and wants to get an apartment in New York City and chooses, let's say, the West Village and is going for a $3 million apartment because they know that there's enough assets in the trust that they can easily afford the down payment and the ongoing payments. Whereas realistically, does a 22-year-old really need a $3 million penthouse apartment? Although I think in the West Village, you might not even get a penthouse for that. And the trustee has to say, no, you're smoking dope. You can live on the Upper East Side, or you can live in Brooklyn, you can live in Queens, and we're looking at something much more affordable. Then there starts to be a not so happy with each other. Some friction. What I like to put in my documents is the ability of the trustee to appoint a co-trustee or resign and appoint a successor trustee if that gets difficult. What I will do with an older responsible child is 
let's say we're doing asset protection going forward. I mean, you can have a lifetime trust for your child. We do that oftentimes for tax reasons, for asset protection reasons, you know, if there's more wealth there. And we will give the child the right to remove and replace a trustee so long as it's with someone independent or a corporate trustee, et cetera. I would absolutely not put that a provision in. With a younger child, we don't know if they're going to have a problem or not have a problem. I would give the power to the trustee. With older children, where we know they're responsible, they're more formed, I will often make them, and they could be over the age of 18, we often say when they turn 25 or when they turn 30, they could be co-trustee with the trustee. It does not give them the right to pull Really interesting. I never knew that, but like co-trustee, so there's still the balance, right? Because you still have the other trustee. And I need the other trustee to make distributions. But if I know I have a responsible, again, I'm using the word child loosely, because I guess technically you're not a child after the age of 18, then what I like about that, and especially let's say their first distribution is 30 and you make them co-trustee at 25, now they're starting to look at financial statements. I do not want children to start receiving money when they have been blind to what's going on in the account. Again, I wouldn't do that as an automatic provision because if you have, I'll take our worst case scenario, you have a child who has a drug problem, you don't need to put them on an account. I mean, they should not be put on an account. So it wouldn't be part of what I would recommend to anyone with young children. But anyone with older children, it's usually a nice way of saying, we'll keep assets in trust longer. We have asset protection, but they'll start looking at the accounts if something happens. Yeah, yeah. and starting to become empowered and more knowledgeable and and all of that. and by the time they receive funds, at least they should know something about the market. Yep. Hopefully, they're yeah. now acquainted with the financial advisor. They don't give it to their friend who's going to double the money, but doesn't tell them that they'll lose half of it also. Let's put it in some Bitcoin. Question, are there any other considerations for if you have children, particularly on other documents, healthcare proxy, if your child turns age 18, do you need to get one of those documents for them since they're considered now an adult? Absolutely. So some universities for children who are college bound are starting to do that. Oh, that makes me Um, so happy. That's really good. A lot of them are, or they'll mention it. I draft them for my clients because I feel very strongly, and of course any parent does as well, that if your child has a problem, you want the school or the facility at the school to be able to call you up. I also put in my documents, which is not generally in the standard healthcare proxy, and certainly not what I've seen the universities provide, is for a release of medical records if the proxy is invoked. In other words, if you have a child who's unconscious, you want to see the medical records. I mean, for those of us who are in cities or who have excellent doctors, we might want to have a second opinion. And we have HIPAA regulations, which will prevent that. So the first step is making sure your child goes to school with a healthcare proxy. And the second is it would be lovely if that document released records at that point. Yep. So I know we're coming up to the end. Any other things about planning for young children or teenagers that we should think about before we jump into tax considerations? The big thing I think people should really consider I'm going to say for any beneficiary, but especially for children, is doing 
revocable trust. Those are trusts you can change. You still would have the will, but for ongoing trusts that don't necessarily have to go through court. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. the court expense and procedure is very, very expensive and very, very time consuming. A trust is like a contract that you can have a trust under a will, but I'm talking about a standalone trust that acts like a contract that basically says, during my life, my assets are mine. I can do whatever I want. It will operate under my social security number. I don't need to file any returns. But here's what happens if I'm incompetent or I'm not alive. Here are the continuing trusts. This is a document that generally, again, needs no court supervision and can be used fairly quickly with financial institutions to gain control as opposed to the court process that can take month after month after month, could take a year, while assets are frozen because in order to appoint an executor or a trustee under a will, that must be approved by the court first. There's no possibility of ever taking a will to any financial institution and saying, look, I'm named as executor trustee. Let me have access to the account. 100% of the time, the courts need to appoint that person. And then I guess the only other thing I would say where people try to avoid that, they're like, oh, I'll put my children on accounts. They're children. (laughs) There is not a financial institution in America that is going to hand money over to a child. That will end up in a different court proceeding because you've put a minor down. And then when they're 18 is exactly the time you probably don't want to need them to get that money. And also from a gift tax perspective, my understanding is that if you're putting someone on that account, say it's a child, and maybe even that child's 21, but if you're adding a child to an account, essentially you've gifted them the value of that account and you're able to give $17,000 a year for that Mm -hmm. annual exemption. And most likely it's more than that. Right. There are different rules depending on how you gift, but certainly you want to be very aware that federally we charge tax on the transfer wealth. We being the IRS, not me personally. So don't (laughs) don't take that on Amy. No one will like you. I don't. I don't (laughs) indeed. Don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. So I don't care what state you're in, there's federal estate tax, which numbers are, it's a moving target. It gets cut in about half by 2026. So I will have people say, oh, I don't have to worry. I know the exemption's very high. And I ask them if they're intending to live till 2026 when the exemption decreases. And they're like, oh, yeah, I am. And then various states also have estate tax. And it depends on the state where you're domiciled at death. So you want to give some thought to that because you may be in a state that doesn't have tax that you end up later in that state. And regardless, we have the federal exemption, which is certainly subject to change. So you would want to be mindful as you're giving assets to children, depending on your wealth, you know, how you're doing that. So you eliminate or mitigate that tax. That's something to think about too, you know, we always think about leaving assets to children at death, but a lot of our clients, especially as they see their young adults become very responsible adults, starting to gift during their lifetime so they can see the benefit. So they can see, you know, you're able to maybe go on a special vacation, a family vacation that couldn't have happened if without that gift of 15, 16 or 17,000. 
there's a lot of benefit in being able to to help your kids while they're growing up, but also when they become adults. Anything else that you can think about for preserving wealth for future generations? And Certainly. So anyone who has, I'll say whatever the definition of this is, a substantial amount of wealth, which would be wealth that would be taxable, again, those numbers are subject to change. Yeah. You know, I could throw out numbers now, but they're just subject to change. You know, you have a new government and they're like, this is the exemption. That's the exemption. It's not the exemption when you're creating the documents. It's the exemption when you're transferring the wealth. So for people who have, you know, a good amount of wealth, we usually start the gift. You can start the gifting process for babies, but you put it in a vehicle that they don't get access to it until they're much older, more responsible. You can absolutely put provisions in about whatever drug testing or meeting certain milestones so that you make sure that it goes to them when they're responsible. But that's one of the ways the earlier someone try, starts transferring wealth, the more successful it is, generally yeah. speaking. Yeah, no, I know I'm actually going to be hiring my son through my company this year for the summer to do an internship. And I'm so excited. That in some ways is a transfer of wealth. But what I'm so excited about is that he's going to take the hourly fee I pay him, which will be, you know, just the minimum per hour of New York State. And we're going to be putting the equivalent of that dollar amount into a Roth IRA for him because there's a special provision that if you make $2,000 during the summer, you can put $2,000 in that Roth IRA, but it doesn't have to actually come from the child. The parent can put $2,000 in and it doesn't count as part of that gifting. So I don't know, I'm a little bit of a nerd this way, but it's so exciting to also have children start to learn about money and invest money. And both Samantha and Sebastian have investment portfolios at Charles Schwab. What we've done is we have essentially bought their gift cards off of them from their birthday and put that in an account for them at Charles Schwab Invested. And the two of them are going at it <laughs> because right it. now Samantha's account is above Sebastian's and she's the younger by three years and she's loving it. And as a 14 year old outdoing your 17 year old brother with her investment choices. Although I have to say, Amy, I'm very upset for Christmas. We got her a woman's leadership fund and Sebastian wanted a AI tech fund and an his AI tech fund is doing a lot better than her women's leadership fund. But there we go. Oh. Sidebar. Sidebar. <laughs> so I can't thank you enough for being here. Amy, how do our listeners get a hold of you? And can you also talk about the states where you practice and sure. the, so, the work that you do? Yeah, I'm in New York. So we're tri-state area. You know, I could probably help someone get to a good attorney in a different location. Probably the best way of you could go right to our website, which is aholzmanlaw.com. So that's A-H-O-L-Z-M-A-N-L-A-W.com. My last name does not have a T in it. We're a team of five attorneys, three paralegals. So we're a nice group. And this is what we do all day long. We just specialize yeah. in state planning. I'm happy for you know anyone out there to, if they want to give me a call. Emails are great. Even if you hit our info site, it's fine. My sister and I, we both pull out the emails and we personally respond to them. So they do not go into a black hole. 
probably the best way of setting up a time to talk yeah. and go through. That's well, that's fantastic, Amy. And we'll make sure for all of you listening that we put that contact information of the website for Amy and more background. And I'll also share with everybody listening. Amy is my own estate planning attorney. And I just feel really blessed because, Amy, you've kind of like seen the life cycle of, of my life of you know having yeah. kids and having two pennies to rub together when we were young to now we're in a place where, you know, blessed that we've been able to save and do well and a whole different way of thinking and of planning too for our kids. And it's been exciting. And I just want to say thank you. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure. And you sort of bring up ending on, on a good point. And an important point is your situation changes. Like you yeah. put this yeah, together. It has, it has where, changed. Wherever you are in life. And then, you know, every few years you dust it off. I mean, a few years could be five years, 10 years, or there's a major life event. And we dust it off and we take a look and we go, oh, now we can do something else. Yeah. And things do change, right? There no new assets to think about and how do you protect them. So, well, thank you so much for being here, Amy, on Financially Ever After Widowhood. This is a really important topic. And you were able to talk with such knowledge, but also in a way that was very approachable and understandable. So thank you. Thank you. There's a special responsibility that widows feel for making sure that their children are taken care of. And my hope for you is that our conversation today with Amy Holzman, talking about all the things you should be thinking about, everything from choosing the right guardian leaving money to your children in a way that supports them and in no way negatively impacts them, having the estate planning documents that you need to make sure that they are taken care of. My hope is that this is helpful for you. And if you have any questions along the way, please do reach out to Amy and all of her contact information is in the show notes that we're sharing with you. In addition, if you have any questions about your finances, I want you to make sure that you reach out. The favorite thing about my job is helping individuals. And I'd love to chat with you about your financial situation and to be able to provide resources, whether that's working with us and maybe we are a great fit or maybe we're not the best fit. My commitment to you is to give you the information you need to make sure that you're on financial track to a secure financial future. Thank you so much for joining us for Financially Ever After Widowhood, and we'll be seeing you in two short weeks. Thank you for tuning in to Financially Ever After Widowhood. If there's a question you'd love for us to answer on the podcast, we can do that for you. All you have to do is give us a call, and the number is 347-682-5580. Let me say that again. 347-682-5580. Whether you're working with an advisor or you're maybe doing it on your own, we invite you to reach out to us at www.francisfinancial.com or you can email me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at francisfinancial.com. Our hope is to be a resource for you to help you also find a great financial advisor, whether that be with our firm or one of our trusted colleagues. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast 
and join us next time on Financially Ever After Widowhood.